This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Chris Andrews, and my brother Nick. In this episode, The Assassin's Mace. In Chinese folklore, there exists the idea of a weapon that helps the weaker, less heavily armed man prepare to counter and fight his stronger enemies. The Shashojan, or in English, Assassin's Mace, was said to be a special club used to break the strong enemy's blade in combat or cause damage through his thick armor. The weapon helped offset the strength of the enemy and level the battlefield to give the weaker man a fighting chance. In the modern world, security analysts use the term to describe China's approach to military strategy. The idea is to build to Chinese, not American strengths. By building new weapon systems, specifically aimed at targeting and countering U.S. capabilities, China is looking to balance the scales asymmetrically to give itself time to grow in strength until one day it can go toe-to-toe with the strong enemy. Today, we review the general idea of countering a stronger opponent asymmetrically and what it means for future relations with China. Game Theory, podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. And Chris, we have outlasted the dude who named his podcast slash HBO show over something stupid like Game Theory. His show has been canceled. Bomani Jones, anyone looking for Bomani Jones, that shit's been canceled from HBO. Because, has it really? Yes. Recently, he also got fired from ESPN because um, these content creators have not realized that like making good content and being a writer and thoughtful is not as important as being famous. Just get a lot of TikTok and Twitter followers. They just like don't seem to get it. And they're like, oh, but I had this show. Like, no one cares anymore. If it were 2002, they would, but they don't get TikTok followers. So he got canceled. So we are, we are the last. Also, um, I was never worried about that because game theory being about basketball and game theory being about game theory, I think that legally I looked it up and we're like, we're probably good. You can't, if we call their show Gravity, and some other show called it, like, the movie Gravity couldn't get mad at us. That's fantastic news. Yes. Not That's arguably the best news I've heard but all year. Yes. So we I are, can't believe we outlasted an HBO show. Also, a guy that's, like, been on, I don't know, uh, Around the Horn a million times. I think he's done Pardon, uh, Pardon the Interruption. Like, he's, like a, he's a sports talker star, and we, we bested him um, out of laziness and dedication from Player 3, the best player in the world. Player 3, you are the MVP of this entire podcast. I'd, I'd really like to thank the Academy for <laughs> defeating Bomani Jones. Can we can we tag him in our socials when we post this episode? Ooh, um, Give him a big shout out. What's we, he going to do? We, maybe we could have him on our show. <laughs> that would be funny. Talk, yeah, t- let's talk about the game theory of how to keep a show from collapsing beneath its own weight. Yeah, HBO. So this is what, and the, just a real quick aside, we're talking about something called the Assassin's Maze, which has to do with Chinese military strategy and also... Um, medieval military strategy both of those things um, are correct so we'll talk about that of course we're going to revisit some things from some old episodes and update you and we're, we're going to banter and all of that but I have this is the wife and I have an opinion that is very aggressive and we're not it's not an aggressive opinion our defense of it is aggressive Netflix is good at one thing HBO I will never call it Max I will never call Twitter X it's HBO no. it's Twitter yeah it, ever yeah like, like let's let's be honest the original name is the thing that we're going to call the thing forever so HBO scripted content is far superior to Netflix's 
Apple's getting close, but I don't have an Apple device, so I can't watch it on my phone, so I'm falling behind. I don't know to tell you. But that, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, you, can't, you can't watch it on your phone. Look, Player 3, if you're out there thinking you're better than everybody because you have Android software, because you have some I kind am. of Samsung phone or whatever, if you think you're so much better than everybody else, I, I beg you to have a video call with somebody with an iPhone. I beg you to join the rest of the world in using an iPhone to try to make a simple video call or like or like share a video. Why is it that media gets compressed down to the size of a thumbtack when you try to send it to somebody who doesn't have the same operating software? Can uh, somebody please explain to me why that is? Uh, honestly, the game theory of uh, is it discrimination to not have an app on both app stores? Who's to say discrimination? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Netflix is good at documentaries. HBO is good at scripted content when they cry, try to cross over i'm like mm. so the only thing is like the first two seasons of uh house of cards and, and then stranger things which i've only watched one season of and i will i'll get around to that one day for sure but other than that netflix is like everything is very pg-13 even when it's rated r it's, and hbo their stuff is great but when hbo does things like bomani jones it's not great that's a, that's a netflix thing and yeah, yeah i gotta gotta agree with that that's like it's right up there with the content you would expect for like the michael jordan documentary mm-hmm no really question. good example of a Netflix show, the quarterbacks documentary. That's yeah. on Netflix, right? Yeah, that is that is Netflix, and they, the quarterbacks is a part of a larger sports thing with tennis and F one and golf, and that's been great. Everybody's liked all of that for sure. Okay, so uh, Assassin's Mace, we'll get to that in a second. Um, we did Taylor Swift stuff, and I think that that was a fun episode for the summer. And I want to. This is a real thing. My Swifty credentials. I have not checked the inboxes because I'm scared, but. I, do, do you know, okay, when you say you haven't checked the inboxes, does that mean you don't know if we've gotten anything right, or so you know that we have not? I know I have not checked the inboxes as of this episode dropping, so I'm not 100% sure of hate mail that could have come for Swifty Takes. However, we usually only get people mad at us when we talk about politics who think that A, we're liberals, and B, that we have a bourgeois taste, which we don't. Yep. Bourgeois We're taste. bourgeois politics. So anyway, people use that word unironically. Wouldn't no bourgeois bit him in the ass. Most Americans are not bourgeois and cannot possibly be. But Spotify has notified me. That's about. Spotify has notified me that I'm in the top 13 percent of Taylor Swift listeners as of this moment in the world. That's pretty impressive. It does not match my Weezer credentials. No, Chris. For those of you that don't know. Chris may have been the biggest Weezer listener, other than their quality assurance guy that works for them. At one you point. know when they did the Spotify, like here's your top listens. It would think it was like twenty, was it twenty twenty or twenty twenty one? Right around there, like Ooh. nineteen. They start right before they started doing like before the raps got really cool. Yeah, so it well no, it was it was like I think my first rap. Okay, yes, yeah, like right around there. I was in the top zero point zero zero five percent of Weezer listeners. Literally, like that. You and the quality assurance guy. <laughs> it's because the blue album. Yeah. And Pinkerton are the perfect albums. They are and good. all their stuff after that was pretty good. Now they, uh, I don't think they're that good anymore. Their they're, newer stuff sucks. It's not Yeah. Good. Well, I mean, everybody, we, that's why we talked about Taylor Swift was amazing is it doesn't seem like she's got to that point, but most bands do get there. So don't question my T-Swift credentials. 13% is pretty good. That's pretty good, guys. That's pretty good. Also, um, we are reading the How to the Baskervilles. It will be up on Fable as you start this. We are going to do a YouTube recap of The Swerve at some point in the next couple days or so. It'll be posted on YouTube, which is just ta- us talking about the book. And I wanted to pitch you a drop. So this is a drop of the whole clip. I was listening to the audiobook. I was as I was driving down the road, going to 
put an offer on a house, looking at houses, and I was listening to the audiobook, and I heard this, and I, th- I literally pulled over on an exit to bookmark where this happened so I could put it on the show. Are you ready? This, you may remember reading this, but I, maybe because you're reading and just going quickly, you're not registering how funny this is. This was a thing that a 14th century, 15th century diplomat wrote to another 15th century diplomat arguing about who discovered which manuscripts. Are we ready? Rightly, I could have bitten off the fingers you stuck in my mouth. I did not. Since I was seated and you were standing, I thought of squeezing your testicles with both hands and thus lay you out. I did not do it. Mm. <laughs> I thought of squeezing you your testicles with both hands. your balls. Yes. Because you think you found a manuscript faster than I did. Well, they were fighting. One guy put his fingers in the other guy's mouth, but he was standing. So the guy that had the fingers in his mouth was going to grab him by the testicles to, like, crush him. So I, I'm going to put an official drop in the show. I could have squeezed you by the testicles and thus lay you out. I did not. Absolutely incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah that's a thing. Are, are they were they are they fighting? Are they so Poggio was the one that had the that put his fingers in the older guy's mouth, and the older Poggio guy wrote like to Poggio who would do that. Yes, hundred percent. Poggio wrote to that, or that guy wrote to Poggio and said, "I let you do that. I could have crushed you by the balls, but I didn't." <laughs> Absolutely incredible stuff. They, like they invented shit posting. They did. That's it. That mean, and then he wrote it, and then other people read it. Anyway, that's. I thought that was hilarious, and that's going to be part of the show now. Just to, just to remind people that um, we are not as debased as we once were, even though it may seem like that. Okay, a couple other quick notes. Um, we are going to do more John Henry stuff. The I've, I found a new term. Not It's not taking the internet by storm quite yet. It's called grumpy stayers. So remember quiet quitting. A grumpy yes. stayer is someone who's good enough at their job that their boss keeps them there and they don't want to leave and they're not they don't have like the ability to market themselves and thus climb the ladder they're called grumpy stairs so we're gonna do a grumpy stayer episode and wow we got a lot of shit to talk about um yeah you know what honestly we'll save some of this stuff for other episodes we were right about airbnb people are taking the bus more than planes now which is crazy and also we're gonna do a fantasy wait, 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 sorry people are taking the bus more than planes more than they have because of planes my bad like greyhounds yeah what is this, John Madden? Uh, two things. One, um, pain in the ass. Like buses don't screw you over as much. Two, substantially cheaper. So if you're gonna be sitting on your ass for 14 hours, you could do it laid over at an airport with people that hate you, and you're essentially trapped and kidnapped. Or you could be on a Greyhound. You know what? That actually doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I mean, for a budget, why 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 wouldn't you? So we might discuss the the, the uh, transportation situation in this country, and also. Short-term rentals cracking down. we got a lot of stuff. It's going to be a big fall as we return from our little uh, summer sabbaticals. I was buying a house. Auction drafts, fantasy football. We'll talk about auction drafts and the game theory of that. Alas, Chris, we are going to talk about something called the Assassin's Maze. We do these weaponry ones. It feels like about every two or three months, and this is a real practical application of game theory beyond just like how to make money in the economy. Like This is like death and stuff. So Assassin's Maze is a Chinese phrase. What does it mean? Let's just kick it off here. Yeah, so the term assassin's mace does come from Chinese. The the opinion is Shashojan. And it's basically a Chinese concept that comes out of kind of myth and legend. So right. it, it's rooted in folklore. And it's it's kind of a, a modern day term that people referring to China use to describe the way that China is trying to balance itself against a much larger, much more powerful adversary in the United States. It's kind of like, if you think of like David and Goliath, kind of the story there is that this huge burly warrior wanted to go toe-to-toe with this like kid, basically. Yeah. And the kid killed him because he flung a stone at him. So he yeah. used a different type of weapon than the 
Goliath was prepared to fight. David or uh, Malcolm Gladwell kind of wrote about that yeah. in one of his books. I don't know if you. I don't know if you. Read I have that read one story. Malcolm Gladwell book, and this was not in that one. Yeah. This, well, the the long and short of the Malcolm Gladwell portion of the story is that the David and Goliath story actually makes a ton of sense. It's not about like somebody shockingly overcoming a much more powerful, larger adversary. It actually makes a lot of sense because somebody who's used to throwing projectile weapons against somebody who is not will win every time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like if you brought a gun to a knife fight. Yeah, I, 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 thought of, I thought of two metaphors, and you'll have to tell me if I'm right about this. Number one is, I'm not sure how far you made it in Game of Thrones or not, but then when the dragons were finally at warfare, the people that were trying to kill the dragons had these big things that were built specifically for killing dragons, and they might kill the dragon, but then also, at the end of the day, part of this, this double-sided sword or this the double whatever. <laughs> I can't tell you. Yeah, no, this is good. Yes, it's great. It's great podcasting. Part of the issue is that if the mace doesn't work, if the arrow doesn't kill the the dragon you just miss and the dragon's still alive yeah so this is not quite as high stakes as that it doesn't create as good a drama sure <laughs> it's it's kind of a it's kind of a way to balance out having some kind of deficiency where you can't match up with a more powerful adversary in directly head to head or in a, a broad array of, of different areas but you can figure out a way to try to kind of counterbalance or try to offset whatever the advantages are that your adversary has. So in the David and Goliath case, Goliath is big, fast, strong, and heavily armed. So to offset that, don't get close to him. Yeah, Stay as far away as you can and use a weapon that's going to strike from afar. So similarly, Assassin's Mace, like the actual reason that it's called Assassin's Mace, according to like the Chinese folklore origin story, is that the Assassin's Mace is used to like blunt or break the adversary's sword. And it's a way to kind of protect oneself from a really dangerous weapon and now in the modern sense military analysts use the term assassin's mace to refer to an asymmetrical warfare kind of strategy that china has to pursue if it's going to go to war with a more powerful conventional military like the united states yeah so mace has two uses when you think about a weapon one is the mace that you spray in the eyes of someone who's like trying to sexually assault you specifically if you're a woman also a bear there's bear mace this is not the spray stuff this is no it's a not weapon. no this, yeah, is, this like is like a handheld yeah. club thing yep yeah it's got like a got like a little handle and basically just like it's for hitting people yeah and it, it's the idea of that particular weapon is that it was designed to not get killed by a sword so as this relates to things that are happening in the world, there are a number of blogs, and, 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 and I, it feels like the, the term was coined diplomatically recently. Is that true? It's not super recent. I think it's gotten a lot of attention recently okay. because the U.S. military and its, its public statements uh, and like scholar, like actual yeah, uh, yeah. non-government scholars have written extensively about the use of the term assassin's mace in Chinese literature. They write about the use of the term in Chinese like contemporary speeches and stuff. And they've written about it as a conceptual way that China is approaching the the impending grand strategic competition with the United States for the next several years. So it, it's gotten a lot of attention recently, especially since word about China's rapidly modernizing nuclear program has kind of made its way into the public sphere. Uh, a couple of summers ago, people who look at open source satellite imagery found what appear to be large intercontinental ballistic missile silos being constructed in the Chinese desert. And China hasn't really acknowledged the existence of those things to date, as far as I know. I don't really keep up with Chinese media. I'm not on the Chinese internet. But when people discovered those large silo fields, the news kind of broke that, oh, 
well, okay, China's really trying to really do be out here building stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're a smaller country that has fewer resources and a less powerful military, and you haven't had a fought, if you haven't fought a war since 1979, like China, then you have to find some way to try to offset. You have, you have to build in some kind of asymmetric advantage to kind of counter whatever your adversary's strength is. And nuclear weapons are one way to do that. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me because I, what I'm going to say, I'm sure you're going to shoot down and get angry about, but I kind of, I want to work this out. I don't have a real thought out take. I'm, this is an open, this is a whiteboard conversation. What I'm about to say, actually, I'm scared of saying it now. Is it a whiteboard conversation because it's remarkable? Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I actually have to change the sounder over here because we're not prepared. Wait, wait, wait. There it is. Great. Um, Great joke. I, is it because we've done the proximity paradox and the safety of the threat of violence? Nuclear weapons are bad. China, they have had them before or no? Yeah, China has had nuclear weapons since the 60s, October okay. 16th, 1964. They tested their first atomic device. Early on in China's nuclear history, Mao Zedong described them famously as a paper tiger. He said, Yeah, they're not a big deal. War is still like a people's game, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the weapons are. And then over time, China realized, like, well, actually, that's not really true. And <laughs> they learned a lot of lessons from other people's wars, like especially the Gulf War in 1991. They realized how important, like, fast planes and good high-speed information is. In Tiananmen Square, they realized how powerful a forced democracy is. You're right. In, 1990, in Christmas 1991, they realized how crappy the Soviet Union is and how important internal political stability is. Right. So they've, they've learned quite a few lessons, and one of the lessons that they've learned is that actually having good technology and high-quality information and precision strike capability and powerful military technology really makes a huge difference. So they have the world's largest conventional ballistic missile program. They have a, quite a few. I think the Department, the U.S. Department of Defense in 2022 released a paper saying that China has upwards of 400 nuclear weapons. So that's quite a few if you think about mm-hmm. it. I would agree. It's, it's quite a few less than, than the United States has, but they still have a bunch. And in that same paper, the Department of Defense also said that China plans to build as many as 1,500 nuclear weapons by 2035. So the next 15 years, China's going to go ham and build like 1,000 new weapons. The interesting part about this to me, so are we, I mean, we're very obviously very, very, very much in a Cold War right now where Ukraine is Afghanistan of the 70s kind of, right? So like there's a war happening. I don't know if, I don't know if that's the perfect comparison, but I mean, it's, it's a pretty good comparison. Yeah, I mean like, but the, the, the other thing that's kind of weird to me is it seems like Russia is its own, its own wild card right now because Putin is crazy. But if, yes. he, if he weren't crazy and he were a real diplomat that were doing this in a way that was a little bit less crazy, then you would think that it's not... With him being crazy, it feels like China is using Russia as sort of like their... Like Russia is the proxy now for China? That's sort of how well, the, the you, sense I get. You would, you would think so because Russia and China have kind of an all-weather, all... They said they described it as a a no limit friendship Mm. just before the Olympics. Right. FWB. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) NLB or NLF, no limit friendship. Right. They're just uh, they're just homies. And they they made that statement together when Xi Jinping visited Russia just before the February 22, like the winter 2022 Olympics. Yeah, of course. I remember that when they were they had people skiing by nuclear power plant silos. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So I guess. So I said that backward. Xi Jinping didn't visit Russia. Vladimir Putin visited China. Right. Before the Olympics. Yes. And they released that statement. And then like days later, days after the Olympics ended, 
Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Yes, I recall. I so, don't think that China is pleased with how that invasion is going because Russia is also not pleased with how it was going. Like they, they literally said there, there's evidence to suggest that they literally said, expect this to be over within like four days. They told people who were going to the front lines, bring your dress uniforms to prepare for like the victory parade within the first week of deployment. Yeah, that's and that uh, they, it, they were caught unawares with their pants down. And also the Ukrainian people, if you go back historically, I would say that not going to rank the people to whom atro- upon whom atrocities have been committed. But that section of Eastern Central Europe, that has been a place of death and sadness for a long time. And I'm very proud of them for finally being like, nope, you're gonna have to kill us all. Which, because um, that's when, I mean, in Ukraine, there were genocides and the Holodomor and a bunch of stuff going on there. But now the, the, this Assassin's Mace idea is, so how much of this do you think we can look at and it has to do with the fact that China hasn't been in a war in like 50 years? They have to keep think up a- in one way, right? I personally think a lot of it has to do with that. I mean, the the way that you keep a military force fighting fit is by fighting wars. I mean, the only way to get better, like you can do exercises all the live long day. You can train people until the cows come home. But if you're not fighting a war, then you're not going to be good at fighting war. You're not going to be proficient at fighting wars. And, you know, there's something to be said for like the, the, the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, there's something to be said for sustaining a fighting force with experience yeah uh, I, so I'm, I I'm not saying that. that those the either of those invasions are necessarily a good thing or beneficial yeah. to u.s foreign policy objectives or u.s image abroad i'm not saying that and i'm not saying that they are justified by trying to keep the force fighting fit like well yeah we got to fight wars otherwise we're gonna get bad at wars so let's go pick on two countries to invade i'm not saying that's the reason either but i am saying that there is a proficiency difference in a force that has been in country in a war zone fighting against other hostile powers in this case we we're fighting a war on terror the hostile power of an improper noun but that's a di- there's a difference between that kind of fighting force and one that hasn't fought a war like i said since 1979 yeah, and I th- I think that that, of course, makes a ton of sense. Like, how else are you going to sharpen your blades? You can just sharpen your blades over and over and over again. Now, so I found this blog written by this guy um, who, honestly, DM me, bro. I will help you with some design on your blog or whoever's blog it is. His name <laughs> what you, is... What are you, a designer? Are you a graphic designer? Now? I'm not a graphic designer, but I'm not... I mean, we use font with feet when we write long form because that helps people read from letter to letter. Also, black, uh, white, white type on black background is, um, it's tough. It's good in some instances, but not for long form reading. There's other, regardless, this guy's name is, um, uh, he looks like he lives in Alabama, J. William DeMarco. He is the chief innovation development assistant professor at Air University, a blogger, a TEDx speaker. Um, he's also into music and sci-fi and uh, apparently bodybuilding, but his he does nice. a lot of I like stuff. This guy. Yeah, Air University seven years, which Air University seems like a real thing. I'm just gonna quickly. <laughs> I, th- I think that this guy has had a dot mil uh, email address in his past. Is what I'm trying to say. It's higher drop, education. Drop that in the chat. I wanna. Yeah. I wanna check out this website. Okay, cool. It's just his blog, and it's thought. It's it's his thoughts on um, Assassin's Mason. His general relationship with it to China. So he's got some like interesting examples of what he would call current present day. Assassin's May stuff. I want to get your historical examples, like recent historical examples. Um, the surprise attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor was Assassin's Mace, is what he's saying. The development of the atomic example. bomb, Assassin's Mace. In Vietnam, the Vietnamese deployed a strategy of guerrilla warfare, Assassin's Mace. And then cyber warfare and biological weapons um, are Assassin's Mace as well. Uh, I, I guess that kind of works. I mean, it's biological warfare, I think the first example was, you know, 
the uh, white people's genocide of the North, First Nations of uh, North America and the smallpox blankets, but I don't know. Perhaps it dates further to that. I'm not sure. Oh, you're saying biological warfare was invented after the new world was discovered by Europeans? I don't know the beginning. I know that, that that's the, the earliest example I can recall. There, 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 right there, there are accounts of people in like close to prehistory throwing feces at each other as a form of biowarfare. Dude, biowarfare has been around for a long time. I I don't know. I, I believe you. I don't disagree. Like, of course, that sounds correct. That yeah, well, it, it is. All right. Well, <laughs> that being said, this idea that China is currently and other people, other nations, could be currently finding a way to develop weapons and systems and communications and whatnot that have nothing to do with just getting better as a military, but have specific designs for a specific opponent. On one hand, it acknowledges the inferiority to that opponent. On the other hand, I guess it's a way to stay ahead of the curve. That's the, the weird thing about this assassin's made thing to me because part of it is just being good at war. Yeah, that's that's a, a major component of it. So the way that I learned about this term originally was by reading this book. Uh, it's called The Long Game by a guy named Rush Doshi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rush is currently, I think, as we're recording this, He is the director for China on the Biden administration's National Security Council. So the National Security Council is like big brain people who make major, major decisions that concern all of U.S. national security policy. You might remember the term, Nick, from A Few Good Men when Colonel Nathan R. Jessup was about to be appointed director of operations at (laughs) National Security Council. Yes. So very high up, very important. And uh, Rush Doshi is serving uh, as, as a China expert there. And he wrote in this book, The Long Game, a thesis that describes the way that China has been modernizing its military, its political strategy, and its economic strategy for competition with the United States over the last several decades. And there are a lot of terms and concepts in here. The, the, the basic thrust of this book is that China has kind of a three-phased approach to its competition with the United States starting from a place of we're a smaller, less powerful country trying to compete with a country with a different worldview, much larger military or much more powerful military, much better technology, much more soft power, much stronger economy, all that good stuff. So they're from a position of disadvantage. The first, the first phase of their strategy was to blunt whatever the U S advantages existed. So that's where like the assassin's mace idea would come into play against a more powerful economy, if you want to have, if you have competing interests and you want to implement different types of policies, then you have to implement economic strategies that are going to blunt the power of whatever your adversary is doing. They did the same thing politically, and the way that they did that is participating in these like large multilateral forums, like the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, for example, and different organizations that involve a lot of countries around the world. The blunting there came from kind of stymieing whatever efforts the United States and Western allies were trying to implement. And then the third, the military dimension includes developing weapons that the adversary doesn't have. There's this phrase that he quotes in the beginning of this chapter called grasping the assassin's mace, implementing military building. He says, "Whatever." It, it, this is a quote from Zhang Wanyan, who is the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission in China in 1999. He says, whatever the enemy fears most, we develop that. Hmm. And the basic idea is that you don't have to try to, they, you don't have to look at the adversary and say, well, They have a military structure that looks like XYZ, so we need to build our own XYZ over here. They have military assets that include ABC capabilities, so we need to develop our own ABC capabilities over here. Instead, what you need to do is identify what your adversary's fears and weaknesses are and build military capabilities that address those weaknesses and strategies as a way to not match, 
but to offset whatever your adversary advantages are. And then the last two phases of, of China's strategy, generally speaking, are after they've blunted U.S. advantages, then to start building their own capabilities, which is like modernizing the military even further and developing a stronger economy through specific investment strategies and building political capital, especially in the region. So they went from trying to blunt to build, and then the last phase is expanding. And that's becoming like a global superpower. So China went through the phases of being like kind of a forgotten about corner of the world to becoming a regional power. And now they're on the way to becoming a global superpower through the strategy of expanding. And it started from a place of recognizing that they're not going to be able to match the U.S. toe to toe in military, political or economic terms without developing some kind of asymmetric offsetting capability. And that's where the Assassin's Mace idea comes from. That's where Shasho John comes into play. Okay, so the 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 I, I don't want to say the weird thing, but the all I can think about is in, in and this is on the Wikipedia page, and this is on other articles we've read that this is simply another term that's very close to like ace in the hole in Western society. It's sort of like yeah, your last, yeah, very much, yeah. So, but it's designed for a specific opponent, right? If you know you're fighting Goliath, you're like, well, I can't do this, but I can do that, and if I do it quietly, and Goliath doesn't know that I have a rock then we'll be good. But if if Goliath learns about the rocks, it would appear like he's also going to be better at that than me. So we got to make sure that this is hush-hush. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the case. You, you can you can prepare for somebody much more easily. Like if, if somebody is going to fight you, like if, like if you're in the UFC or something, let's say there's not even the David and Goliath offset. If somebody walked into the ring and said, my plan is to throw three strikes with my right hand to create distance, then I'm going to step in for a leg kick to close the gap, then I'm going to strike once more with my left hand, and then I'm going to start trying to grapple. Like You would just prepare for that sequence and try to find a way to counter it. So if you advertise what your specific capabilities are, then it's much easier for your adversary to try to prepare themselves to counter whatever it is. But at the same time, that that's balanced with a different requirement, which is if your adversary doesn't know you're good at fighting, like let's say you're outside of the octagon and you're like, okay, somebody in, in the alleyway is starting, you know, starting problems. If somebody is heavily armed, then they're going to want to advertise that at the beginning of that confrontation so as to deter any kind of aggression. So if your adversary doesn't know that you have a capability that could potentially cause them uh, unnecessary risk or loss, then they're not going to be deterred. And so you're going to have to actually follow through with whatever the capability is that you have in your back pocket. So it's one thing to have a secret assassin's mace with which you can win a war. And it's another thing to deter because a deterrent that isn't advertised doesn't, it's not a deterrent. It's just a weapon. Yeah. So I guess for, I mean, the the three big players here, and I'm not going to include NATO or the European Union because that's just Largely the United States. Different, anyway. Yeah, it, yeah, it really is, especially with so, the nuclear dimension. Russia, China, the United States, and former Soviet Union, China, the United States. I feel weirdly that similar to not having fought a war in a while and, and the United States and Russia constantly doing that kind of shit is, is an advantage for literal boots on the ground and weaponry and organization. Similarly, having fought, been one of the two countries in the big Cold War has weirdly prepared America for this. It seems like like there's just a general idea that the, this this group has played this chess game before, so it doesn't seem as if people are as freaked out by this this time. I don't know if that could possibly be true, but the idea that, like, are we scared of nukes? Are we scared of that? There are people who are still alive that did the nuclear weapon drills in school, and they remember that, and I'm not sure if that's an advantage for the United States just 
suspecting China of everything always, or if that's not, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I, yeah. I, I struggle thinking about this because I can't decide if it's a case where we have an advantage because we remember the Cold War so keenly, or because we have a or, or that we have a disadvantage because we have kind of like forgotten the Cold War. We've kind of take, have taken our eye off the ball from nuclear deterrence. Like, when was the last time you personally thought about nuclear weapons? Honestly, it was, I mean, it depends what you mean by thought about. I mean, think about them all the time because of this, and like now there's Russia and China, but like thought about it genuinely impacting me. I would say like when North, do you remember when North Korea had a thing? It was like 2013, 2012 or whatever, and they were like aiming something at Texas or something. That's the last time I was like, could this really happen? Like, what what's going on with North Korea? Could they really launch a missile from North Korea to the United States equipped with a nuclear warhead? That was the last time I really thought. I mean, it's been years that I've thought, am I in serious danger? I've thought about nuclear-sized explosions, the mega explosions for a fertilizer plant that was on fire about a fucking stick's length away from my house, but that's about <laughs> it. Wasn't that like last year? That's two years ago, yeah. Something like that, like 18 months or so. Absolutely wild. Yep. Uh, for those of you who have seen the Oppenheimer movie out there, Player Three, oh, yes. fantastic film. And I'm I'm hoping, Nick, that one of the effects of that movie is that people will return to the realization that nuclear war is still like it's still like a real specter that actually hangs over our heads, and it's it, it, it's a real problem. I mean, I know I, I think I've complained to you about this before. People, as the generations advance through time people start to think that climate change is the biggest existential disaster, biggest existential threat that faces us. Yeah. And I've said before, like, it's it's not. Nuclear war would be so, so much more devastating, not for, for, for a multitude of reasons, not least of which is that nuclear winter would be way, way, way beyond anything that any current climate models project. I mean, we're talking complete blackouts from all the fallout and debris that's suspended in the air. We're talking about a complete freezing of an entire hemisphere if things get too bad. We're talking about billions, with a B, billions of people without food production capabilities and just mass starvation and complete famine. Like It would be so much worse than like rising sea level impacts and, and heat waves and, and all that kind of stuff just because nuclear weapons are so huge and so impactful and the specter of nuclear war is just so much scarier to me. So I'm hoping that the Oppenheimer movie has this kind of pop culture effect that, I don't know, like raises awareness or like reminds people that we still live in a world with these incredibly devastating nuclear weapons. Like the yeah. scars are still visible on the earth and in collective memory, you know, in, in Japan's collective memory of itself, like, the nuclear weapon was like a defining, defining moment. Yeah, it's an AC, an ADBC moment for Japan and for kind of the world. Also, I would say that it is, yeah. climate change is a systematic and like an ecosystem situation. Of course, it's bad and it's devastating. It will be for probably centuries, if not millennia, will be a problem. But the Earth cycles in and cycles out. I remember very specifically learning in geology how many dinosaurs were dying when the asteroid knocked them out because of literal global warming. They were farting and burping too, and it was releasing gases, and they were largely dying off and roots to that. And then they got they got the haymaker from the sky. And so, but the, the climate change has been around for a while. If there's a nuclear winter, like say that there are just a couple of nuclear warheads exchanged between two countries, doesn't matter which ones and it escalates anywhere beyond a handful, the timeline goes from like countries and wars and people and families to like a geologic timeline because the animals will die. The food will die. We are in a, like, as you learn about geology, like, well, there's a mass extinction. The mass extinction took like 10,000 years. 
to happen. And then it took them about like a million years to get out of the mass extinction for new animals. That's what we're looking at. Humans, all humans will, I mean, I don't know that the species would survive something serious and we would be one of a number of species that would just be gone forever. I mean, the earth would continue to rotate and 20 million years, who knows what's going to happen. But at that time, at that point in time, a nuclear winter, the, the timeline will become geologic. Like it becomes an epic. Yeah, tr- uh, truly it does. And <laughs> I, I hope that this pop culture moment reminds us that like we're, we, we, we got to take this sort of thing seriously. I mean, um, I, we said just a moment ago, China is building literally hundreds of new nuclear weapons. And if, if the DOD projections are correct, if they have 1500 nuclear weapons by 2035, then they'll have the same number of nuclear weapons that we have now deployed under the new START treaty. That's the new strategic arms reduction talk or strategic arms reduction treaty treaty. Right. And I, I think people don't necessarily realize if they're not in the space, like, well, we, we actually have thousands more nuclear weapons that are just kind of in reserve or in storage or somewhere other than deployed on like an actual weapon system. So in addition to the 1500 that we have ready to go at a moment's notice, we also have a couple thousand just kind of sitting around in different secure sites around the country that could be made into a weapon system if the New START treaty expires. People don't. Uh, people also may not be aware that the New START treaty is expiring soon, like within a year. And if it does, then for the first time, really since like the Cold War, then the United States and Russia won't have any kind of treaty limitations on the number of nuclear weapons that we can have deployed. And that's a scary thought to me because that means that all those weapons could come out of storage and the stockpiles could continue to expand and China has to build faster than and Russia's building faster and it it's going to become like an arms race again. I think a the, lot of people in the in the nuclear space are really concerned about that. The and the weird thing about the, this arms race to me is that it's not like other arms races where a, a great tactic for defensive war has always been scaring the shit out of your opponent. And then you could just kind of scare the shit out of each other and be like, okay, well, we'll back off. Like, there's a safety in the threat of violence. We've discussed that before. That's a genuine mm-hmm. game theory concept. Nuclear war is a little different. I think biological warfare we saw with COVID um, has a similar situation, but not quite as, like, geologic, I guess, in that the arms race isn't between an opponent and an opponent. It's There's no point in this arms race because you can't use the arms. If you do, you will also die because your opponent yep. has even one. Even one would be bad. And at that point, like it's the species is fucked. So there's, it's, it's a weird, and it's a weird thing because a lot of the people in charge kind of grew up in an era like, yeah, just fire the Tomahawk missiles. It'll be fine. Like this is not that. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it, it's, it's a whole different ball game. And, and I don't know how far, like across what domains the assassin's mace concept extends in, in Chinese military thought. I do know that it's a key component to both the blunting and the kind of building components of their grand strategic competition. And it also introduces another type of like deterrence. So like if we talk about deterrence in our deterrence episode, like the basic idea is like, okay, if we, if we go to blows here, then we're both going to take on some serious costs and that's going to cost me too much. And so I won't act. I won't impose costs on you because I don't want to have costs imposed on me. That's, that, that's one kind of deterrence. But then there's a concept called deterrence by denial. And the difference there is that if an adversary knows that their big devastating blow is actually not going to impose any costs, then they're going to be deterred from trying to conduct a strike anyway, because then that means that they open themselves up to receiving costs that they're not able to impose. So the assassin's mace as a blunting weapon then 
introduces deterrence by denial because if an adversary's like strong advantage isn't actually a strong advantage anymore, if you, de- you develop a, a blunting device to kind of take down the costs that the system could impose, then that's another form of deterring the adversary from actually using that system. Yeah, it's so I have I found a sports metaphor for this that I think is really great, and it it, it, it it's very much Assassin's Macy, which is this development we've talked about it over and over again with. Steph Curry and James Harden with the three-point basket, right? Because three is more than two, mm-hmm. so you figure out the percentage at which you have to hit threes and then whatever. So the, you, as a defender, say another nation, guarding against a nuclear warhead, which in this case would be a three-point shot, I guess, you have three options defensively. And I guess I could share my screen. I'll just send you the blog. Obviously, this is from Cornell. They are the Gs. I would love to give author citations on these Cornell blogs, but Cornell, I guess, is happy to take the credit all to themselves. Yeah, shout-outs to Cornell. We use this blog all the time They're for great. researching game theory stuff. Honestly, if this if there was a podcast that was just going through the Cornell blog, I think that would be pretty good, which is basically <laughs> what this is. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that is what this is. So what these basketball players found out is that three is more than two, but then they found out like, well, if it's, let's just say a 20 foot three, like why not a 22, 24, 26, 28? And then you start practicing the 28 foot three. And what ends up happening is defenders have to defend further and further out, which opens up space underneath, and then you can get layups. So defenders have three choices. Either you can guard them, man-to-man everywhere they are on the floor. Let's just say you're capable of doing that physically. Number two, you can guard a regular three and just bank on the fact that they're not going to hit those at a percentage that would make them reliable. Or number two, you can just simply back off and, and see that they're going to miss every three that they possibly can, right? So the, the options are press, stick, and pack. Are you going to defend the two-point shot that's insanely high percentage? You defend the, the regular three, you're going to defend all the way out. In this instance, right, if everybody's just launching deep threes at each other. Like the whole species is gone. So to deter, you have to think about a way to get people not focused on the deep three and go back to playing normal basketball. Like that's yeah, that, the idea. That, and that introduces the, the kind of stability, instability paradox. I think yes. we, have we talked about that before. Oh yeah, we do nuclear. Like I said, we do a nuclear episode about once every... So we're, we're raising awareness, player three, all seven of you. Um, we're raising awareness <laughs> that nukes are out there and they're bad, Okay. Yeah, talk to your talk to your friends, talk to your parents, talk to your family, tell your loved ones you love them, and be very afraid. But the the stability instability paradox is when there's stability at the strategic level. So, like if there are two kind of roughly equivalent adversaries pointing nuclear weapons at each other, that's generally stable because the one side can't impose more costs on the other side without sustaining unacceptable costs for itself. So they're not going to go to nuclear war with each other. But what that does is creates distance from this high-level intercontinental nuclear exchange and this smaller regional sphere of influence. And uh, I use that term as a loaded term. If there's anybody in the national security space, uh, I can only apologize for having used that term because it carries a lot of freight and different freight for different people. But the point of the stability-instability paradox is that stability at that large intercontinental level makes it actually more likely that countries can successfully conduct war at the local theater level because they don't have to worry about a major nuclear exchange. Their, their, their deterrence is effective above a certain threshold. So as long as they keep the war small, maybe, say, carving off a small chunk of a different country, right. maybe sending an invasionary force to a country and trying to cut it in half and conducting small strikes against that nation's capital, for example, then they can kind of get away with it without major interference from the large deterring adversary so the stability at the top level sounds really great and it is great for the two countries that aren't nuking each other but for smaller countries that 
don't have that kind of deterrent capability, it's actually not super good because they don't have a way to stave off large invasion other than trying to fight. Yeah, it's a big brother picking on someone else's little brother, but then like you can kind of pick on them as long as big brother isn't there and then you can run mm-hmm. away. Like there are three powder kegs right now in the in the world where I feel like this is a thing, two of which are low backloaded with nuclear weapons, of course, Russia, China, the United States. So there's the Taiwan and South China Sea, the naval stuff. There's the border of Ukraine, Russia, the former Soviet Union. The third powder keg, which is why people are so freaked out about a specific country in the powder keg, is the Middle East, which is um, essentially Israel and not Israel in the area. And if one of those countries, say Saudi Arabia or Iran, were to start acting like this, we'd be in the exact same situation. So right now, True. because they don't have nuclear weapons, we can kind of, um, as a, a, a global police force, the United States and other countries can kind of go in there and screw around and assassinate generals and shit, which they didn't believe under the Trump administration. Um, <laughs> I think that's right, right? Didn't they do that? Didn't We did that. I think uh, so. Yeah. yeah, that happened. But that kind of shit isn't going to happen if Iran has nukes. We've got to do this whole thing. And then they can kind of, having a nuclear weapon for Iran wouldn't, or, or Saudi Arabia wouldn't, necessarily make them a bigger nuclear threat it would just simply give them license to be bigger dicks in their region in their own region yeah it 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 really would i mean it's it's a way to kind of stop large countries from meddling in in your own internal affairs uh just to just to clarify the whole assassination point on january 3rd 2020 yep a major iranian an iranian major general was targeted and killed by a u.s drone strike that guy's name was Qasem soleimani Soleimani, that's right. I remember that yep. because that was one of the three or four crazy things that happened in 2020 before the pandemic. There were a number of yep. things that Kobe Bryant, of course, um, there, and there was something else. Like some, some, there were some crazy headlines. And then, oh, the, the, the thing that I'm obsessed with, the Japanese and French automaker CEO that was arrested by Japanese forces and escaped Japanese persecution in the hiding in a banana crate. And now he's in the middle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that whole thing. That, yeah, so like 2020 was wild by March. Yeah, it, it, well, by January. People it thought we were legitimately going to go to war with Iran over the assassination of Soleimani. And that, that happened in, in like early, early January. Yeah. So if, but you're right, if, if Iran has nuclear weapons, then maybe that's a different story. Maybe the president doesn't go uh, have a press conference where he says he died in the dirt like a dog. <laughs> So I have a weird question. Um, other than progress that seems to be being made, so I, I looked up this this article, this research article from JSTOR. They're sort of saying the first time that Americans or, or I guess Western diplomats are finding terms that indicate something near Assassin's Mace is maybe in the 50s. Then in the 90s, it gets a big plug. There's this huge Wired article that is from like 2011. And now we're talking about it in 2023, but it seems to be bubbling up again. Is there a reason like in the last two or three months other than new technology or is this just the cycle of uh, things are still happening? Like, is there is there news? No, I, I not not that not that I know of. I mean, China mm-hmm. is still continuing to conduct nuclear weapons construction operations. They're still building new new weapon systems, even if they don't acknowledge it. Uh, the spy balloon that overflew the United States several months ago uh, could be. I don't know if that's considered an assassin's mace technology per se, but I don't know, remember the last time I heard about a spy balloon being used by anybody. And I think there's some questions about whether that did or didn't actually collect any intelligence or, or I, I don't know what the full story is. But other than just the kind of low level in the background, grand strategic competition that doesn't really affect people day to day, I don't think there's really like huge news. But I do think that there is gradually becoming more and more China literacy as 
the China threat becomes a little bit more important, becomes more significant as they become a, a, a stronger and stronger power. And as China figures more prominently in like the popular imagination and as, as it, as it leaks out of the national security space and into people's daily lives with events like the spy balloon or like the discovery of nuclear weapons silos in the middle of the desert, I think there's going to be more and more discussion about it. So fortunately I think there isn't like new, they haven't discovered like, China has been working with extraterrestrials that allegedly have landed on Earth to develop super weapons. Like I don't, I don't think it's anything like that. But the the use of the term, I think, is important to understand, even if that it's not necessarily indicative of anything that's going on right now. I do think it's important to understand the historical trajectory as to how we got to where we are with China and how they went from blunting to building to now expanding their political, economic, and military power. Yeah, so um, back to our boy, um, J. William DeMarco, or Bill DeMarco, he has noted that one of the interesting, like, for example, a non, I don't say nonviolent, but a non-warfare initiative that could very easily become a warfare initiative, obviously, is something called the BRI. Are you familiar with the BRI? Yeah, the Belt Road Initiative. Yes, so it's China's insanely expensive and ambitious attempt to connect three continents through a systems of roads, bridges, ports, airports, that kind of thing, which is like, yeah, this is for trade. Also, it's like for our trade. Also, here we are with a huge infrastructure to get, you know, our military equipment from uh, Beijing to, I don't know, South Africa, if we wanted to. It's, um, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're doing this and they're like, yeah, whatever. Africa to me is the scariest part of China, but I guess that maybe that'll even be a different nuclear weapon episode. Yeah, China is, like, like the other great powers, China is trying to exploit and carve out as much African natural resources as they possibly can. Like, they're, yeah. they're absolutely trying to make the third world into a resource haven for themselves. Very colonial kind of vibe yes. going on from that yes. kind of thing. Very All right, Chris, so, so uh, as we conclude here a little bit, um, Oppenheimer, it does feel a little propaganda-y, not quite like uh, Rambo going into the uh, Vietnamese forest and, and shooting up a bunch of people, but it does feel like Christopher Nolan wanted to explore this person. I have not seen it. Uh, um, I was you, going oh, to. Well, so that, so, okay, you haven't seen it, so that's the reason that you think it's propaganda. No, 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 not, not propaganda for the United States. Prop, like you're, what you're saying is that it's scary propaganda. It's very much like a, when someone I drops so. a, a plague movie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I hope sure. it's the kind of movie that makes people realize that this is a really scary, serious situation and that the general level of nuclear literacy needs to go up. Yeah. Like, if we no, want to avert disaster, so. if we want to if, if we, if we avert that situation from ever happening ever again, then the public generally needs to become more more attuned to what the issues are. So when what time of day did you see it? I saw it at 10 o'clock in the morning. Shouts to the theater that put that shit on. Good for them. Um, that's yeah, smart. they had a really good day that day because everybody that was in Oppenheimer went immediately next door to Barbie. Barbenheimer, uh, Barbenheimer and the Eras Tour have stimulated the economy and have legitimately blunted a recession that could be coming. Um, people have been threatening for like six quarters now, but like legitimately Taylor Swift, Barbenheimer have helped the United States economy. Yeah, the, the tech bros that have been predicting an economic <laughs> recession for months are in shambles right now. And it's all Greta Gerwig's fault. It is all Greta Gerwig's fault. She got arrested a, a number of times, right? She's like 23 now, which is not something that I like to think about. Greta Gerwig? Yeah, she's in her 20s, dude. The director, Greta Gerwig, is 23. Oh, Greta Gerwig. I'm thinking of Greta Thornburg. <laughs> Greta, <laughs> Greta, Gerwig is the, Greta Gerwig is the shit. Good call. My bad. That's I got, I got my Greta's <laughs> confused. Um, 
yeah. yeah, the accomplished artist who's been making quality films and shows for decades. The reason I asked what time you were in the theater was what was the vibe? Because I know what your vibe was going to be. It's like nukes vibes were high. And vibes also, were absolutely high. But were they high as in like, yeah, we don't fuck with us, we got it? Or was it like, well, this is a really good movie, maybe I should think about this? Well, I'm in the nation's capital, so it was a huge uh, nerd off to see who could have the best appreciation for how serious the issue was. And who mm. knew the most because they read the book first. Yeah, uh, Oppenheimer was one of those books that was a it was a biography that had a huge font of the person, and those to me are always like so popular. If you want a book about Napoleon, just put Napoleon in the biggest font right in the middle. Like, what's this book about? Oh, this is the one. This is the authority on Napoleon. Yeah, that's how you know. Like, it's got to be really thick and inaccessible. Like, if you open a page, there's no chance you're going to understand every term on that page. No, yeah, for sure. That's so, how did you, you read the book good. about Oppenheimer, and what did you think about the historical accuracy? I mean, it was spot on. Incredibly well researched. That's great. I think that there's also a show called Manhattan on AMC that's really good. It's only one or two seasons because, like, they developed it and then won the war. But um, that's <laughs> kind of scared the shit out of me, too, about the capabilities and why he chose New Mexico. And, like, I've watched quite a bit about that. I have, I'm going to watch it. I'm just not going to pay to watch it. Oh, that's the spirit. Yeah. I, I, I just, it's more about I can't believe I've become my father where I just, I can't pause it, so I'm not going in. Oh, my God. Dale, you should be proud. Did you like Barbie? Yeah, I love Barbie. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, Gosling and Margot Robbie, disgusting people. Gross to look at. Yeah. Absolutely. But they're Kenuff. Are they? Well, Ken is Kenuff. I didn't know that. You can't. You got to watch the movies, man. All right. I, I mean, I'm going to. I'm going you to do get it. No, off you gotta my do it. ass. You got to do it. This, this conversation's over. You got to do it. I am moving to Tennessee. So the next time we record, it may or may not be in Tennessee. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Yeehaw.